a few preliminary things. We're not going to go into introductions tonight. This is the second in our three-part evening series. What, what did I call it? Oh, it's Thursday. Land of Opportunity, Land of Challenges. Tonight's uh, program is uh, a program is uh, entitled Affirmative Action Quotas and the Myth of Meritocracy. So I think many of you were here on yesterday at lunch where Professor Dollinger mentioned that we inadvertently have the same topic next week, Wednesday lunch and Thursday night. So I've been trying to figure out what to do because we have close to 80 people sign up for lunch and 90 for evening, but there's a, about a, an 89% overlap in people. So I do not want to give the same program twice. So whoever I, whichever I pick to change is going to affect maybe 10 people. So don't get mad at me, but I think the decision is as follows. We're going At lunch, we're going to do the topic that's in the book. Next Thursday night, we're going to do a special topic here that we either haven't done anywhere else or none of you have heard. So I need to take a vote. Very special. Oh, but I should say that the top that on Wednesday, if you're one of the ten people that can't come to lunch but can come in the evening, we'll be recording that one. So you will not miss it. You can listen to it on iTunes or I can send you a link to it on your computer. But it doesn't make sense to record the same program twice and to miss out on sixty to seventy people who would not come next Thursday night. So your choices of topics since you're here are the following. Let me ask a question. How many of you attended the California Jews lecture at Tempetzedek? Many of us wanted to rain out. Okay. It was recorded. Okay, that one, two, three, four. Okay. So I think we're going to go with a unique topic that has not been done. And I'm going to have Mark tell you what the topic is so you'll know why you should show up. Mark, can I have you just tell people and then we'll keep going? This topic has not been done anywhere else. I have four uh, books out, and through the course of the month, you could go to three of the four. We missed the fourth book. So this is a book of historical documents in American Jewish history. And what I've done is I've pulled out only the best, most fun, most interesting historical documents from all over the place and to talk about them. And since you're probably learning a lot of the larger history, we're going to dive deep into it. And to make it more fun, I actually got some American Jewish music. It's not from the book, but it's music. So we're going to play some songs and talk about the songs. And then we're going to also show some videos and some movies and some clips and some music videos. And we're going to throw that all together and it's going to be a, a historical document look into American Jewish history. It has no overarching thesis. It is not controversial. Well, it is. The documents are. But the talk is just fun. So, so that's what we're going to do. Thank you, Cornells. I'm glad you will be here. The rest of you are invited as well. Okay. Hey, hold on. This is actually a good one. This is our one-month scholar, Sharon Keller. Hey, Sharon. We're just about to start our lecture. We have about 70 people here. Did you get my question about the Bentel brief? And what's the answer? Hold on, hold on. I'm going to put you on. Do you remember Sharon Keller? Yeah, one yeah. So I asked Sharon, hold on. I asked her. I would heard that um, Abe Kahan had written most of the questions that he answers. I didn't know who told me. So Sharon, can you say out loud what, what you found in your research? Hello, every, hello everybody. Hi. It seems that he did, according to the recent scholarship, he did write the majority of the questions because he used the questions as a way to train the immigrants and train the people to his understanding of the proper way of of thinking and doing things. And it would also inform them 
about things that were available to them. So an answer could be tailored or a question could be tailored to come up with the answer that have them go to such and such an organization, have them do A, B, C, or D. So he was using this as a way to help acclimate people to the United States and to socialist uh, and socialized approaches to things. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Everybody just say thank you to Sharon. That was called a scholar within a scholar program, Sharon. Um, and before we start the program, just a question. So uh, when at our program, I guess it was Wednesday, where you showed 1920s uh, America First banners, is that where we got it from in our recent? Or did we come up with it again and not remember that we had that America First approach? Half of America will answer you each way. Right, okay. I believe that it came right out of the 1920s. So someone just picked it out of the, actually. That, 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 they, they just they probably went to a box and just pulled out the banners. They were there somewhere, in the uh, in the archives. The political views are very similar between the Yeah, we are learning history, and history does repeat itself, um, and uh, usually not for the good. So, so let's continue learning history. Our topic for tonight with Professor Mark Dallinger. I don't even know what number lecture this is. I'm going to go with maybe ten. Anybody know what number this is? Twelve. This is 12? Or 13. 13? Have you heard them all? She has. Okay. Except for one. I ordered some presents. They're coming in the mail. We'll be giving them out. Don't forget, closing uh, event, January 27th, in which Professor Dollinger will announce the winner of the hat challenge, the winner of the, we'll see who's attended the most programs, and we'll announce our scholar for next year. Please do not schedule your trip for skiing next year during the one-month scholar. You may go before, which is not a good time, or after. February is a really good time to go to Aspen, or Vail, or wherever you guys go. Okay, so topic tonight, affirmative action quotas and the myth of meritocracy. Uh, Elie Wiesel is coming. February, sorry, he's not coming. Elie Wiesel's biographer, or the uh, Ariel Berger, is coming February 5th. Program is sold out. Uh, if you're a CSP member, you can get on a wait list. Otherwise, you'll have to listen to the podcast. Anyway, Going back, please welcome Professor Mark Dollinger. Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? Someone want to raise their hand and tell us? You got to raise your hand, please. May God's blessing keep the Tsar far away from us. It is indeed from Fiddler on the Roof, our most favorite, least favorite musical from last night. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. And just to let you know, when I ask that question to my undergrads, even if they're predominantly Jewish undergrads, they cannot answer that, which I know, gasp, right? Because this, this is cultural illiteracy, and it's not just Jewish culture. That's American Broadway culture. And for us tonight, that actually becomes the foundational question. Uh, so we have to ask in the Fiddler musical and in American Jewish history, what was the purpose of that question and what was the meaning of the answer? The question, is there a proper blessing for the Tsar because the Tsar was anti-Semitic and uh, actually there's no proper blessing for somebody whose administration is doing terrible things to the Jews, but you have to ask the question anyway. So the answer has to be, you know, keep government away. You see, the experience of Jewish history in the, oh, I can't say that word. Can I say galut, the Hebrew word that you don't want? Do you, what, what do you like to say instead? Not of, anymore. You could say it back then. Thank you. I'm an historian. Pre-state, so, pre-state Israel. Pre-state. Oh, yeah. 
I'm trying to say the word diaspora, but yesterday that, that you know, can, you only can use it historically. That's what I'll say because I'm an historian. That 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 Jews have distrusted strong central governments because strong central governments have historically been anti-Semitic, and it has not worked well. So if you're a Jewish historian and you're like going through grad school and then you're trying to get like the big picture questions for Jewish history over all time and over all place and you want to get a major theme that can organize all of Jewish history, the role of a strong centralized government is a great theme because you can weave Jewish history all over time and place against the theme. And if you do that, something provocative comes up. Proper blessings for the Tsar must keep the Tsar far away from the Jews, except in America, except for the next 42 minutes, because now we're going to totally mess with Tevye's brain and mess with the Tsar and figure out, indeed, if there is a proper blessing. Good evening, Erev Tov. Welcome back, everybody. Great to see you. Let's look at our historical question or our CSP hat challenge. <laughs> And now we are, um, we are getting very fancy looking, you know, artistic color representations. Yeah, okay, they got that quick. Okay, our next one. Very nice. And number three. All right. We, so those are today's entries. Our historical uh, question, why has affirmative action captured the emotion of the American Jewish community? I decided I would just lay it all out there because, all right, so this is not a, a history uh, lecture as much as it is a philosophy and sociology one. And since we've gotten to know each other well, you know, now we're coming on two weeks, I figured we can just dive into the uh, emotion-filled questions so why can't we talk about words like affirmative action and quotas and meritocracy? And then if you looked at the title, The Myth of Meritocracy, so you kind of know where I'm going with my thesis, which is affirmative action illustrates the complexity and ambiguity of American Jewish social mobility. Both privileged and victimized, American Jews approached affirmative action with keen awareness of the threat posed by institutional racism, even as they flinched when those programs eventually included quotas. So we are going to um, examine how it is that American Jews have looked at the larger questions of affirmative action and quota as it represents different themes in American Jewish history. Um, but first, a few announcements. First, in the sad news department, yesterday we read um, the Bintel Brief, and we learned, of course, that uh, Abraham Gahan has authored most of them. Um, so I'm going to enjoy that little factoid. I think the way I'm going to set it up is I'm not going to tell anyone. And then after everyone's done with the back and forth on the letters, I'm going to say, oh, by the way, that was all a lie, right? Because I like to do that. And then they'll all gasp. And then I'll share that information. And then we'll move to the next topic. And they'll, be, they'll just be forever ruptured. Um, today's bad news is that the forward has ceased publication in print as announced this morning after 121 years 
of the foreword. Um, the, the Yiddish version was out of print a few years ago. Now the English version is out. They're going to stay only online. They fired 40% of their staff, including the editor-in-chief, Jane Eisner. So that's, that's kind of sad. Um, next, this is a sticker. It's a fancy sticker book plate, which my uh, daughter Rivi made. She actually made 100 of these um, because um, I got an order for the Black Power Jewish Politics book. The Jewish Federation System of North America has 130-somethings and 40-somethings in their Young Leadership Development Program, and they're focusing on issues of race and racism and Jewish responses to it. So um, they've ordered a copy of the book for everybody. And when they did that, they actually sold out the book. So now the second printing is gone. So yay, I'm excited. And I also want to credit Ari because he got a whole box. Thank you. So all of you have a copy. Some of you may not. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually hovering over some to make sure everyone here gets one. And Marcy's up in San Francisco for a few days. And I said, pile all the books I have left and bring them south. So, um, so that's going to be great. Um, next. A rare moment of, of, of a prize. So where is, wait, where is our prize winner? Oh, right here. So uh, remember I offered you the challenge of using filiopietistic historiographic analysis in conversation? We only have like one minute, so let us know if you can how you used filiopietistic historiographic analysis. In telling, you the, in telling you the story of how the fish hats came about where they were when my youngest daughter came up with the idea for Father's Day in 1992 when she was seven years old. And then nine years later, when the local newspaper in Irvine decided that they wanted to do a story all about it, they got very brotherly about it with me, and they also got very historiographic mm. about the article that they wrote in the Irvine World News. And so it all came together at that point what it originated as, which was a Father's Day present, into a whole worldwide kind of movement in which everybody gets a smile when they see me walking down a street with a hat. They say, where did that come from? What is that? And so it's become a worldwide phenomenon at this point because of our and if you could And if you could use, and how would you use those words as part of that story? Well, the filiopietistic part is that there's a kinship that's above and beyond a brotherly kinship. Love of one's own brother, excellent. Historiographic analysis. Historiographic analysis is the fact that the reporter took what I told her of the history of this thing and how it began and wrote it into a whole thing. Here is the historiographic analysis right here. Well done, congratulations on doing that. And uh, here's your prize. You know I have seven levels of prizes, so I'm just gonna give you three of the seven. That's a Professor Dollinger pen. Thank you. It's the mechanical pencil. Thank you. And it's the Hanukkah dreidel ink stand. Well done. All right. So here's how we're going to work this tonight. Because you are CSP members and attending multiple lectures, um, anytime I'm getting to a piece which we've covered in some way somewhere else, I'm going to just remind you of that and move quickly through it so we can spend more time on the things that we haven't yet covered. If you weren't here for something we're skipping over, when we get to Q&A, just raise your hand and I'm happy to go back um, and explain all of that. So we're going to begin um, in the medieval period. 
Because to understand affirmative action, we have to go back to the Jewish condition in medieval Europe. And it was called corporatism. We have to define corporatism. Well, we know corporations now, if you're in business, you understand what a corporation is. Um, corporatism also relates to people. Because in the medieval period, the way in which governments understood people was by their corporate status, which meant whatever social status you were in, you were part of that group, which legally was a legal group. So the Jews, for example, had a legal definition of who the Jews were. So if you were born into the Jewish group status, you were in it for life, your kid was in it for life, your grandkids were in it for life. If you earned a lot of money and you wanted to, let's say, get out of the Jewish ghetto where the corporate status of Jews was required to stay, you couldn't leave the ghetto because you did not have the right to leave because the corporation of Jews was required to stay in the ghetto. So the king, or less frequently the queen, who wanted to discriminate against a single individual Jew didn't need to make a discrimination on any individual. They got a sheet of paper and said, all the Jews, because they have corporate status as a single legal entity, are now forbidden to, and then you would write whatever anti-Semitic thing you wanted to be. Uh, and the corporate status of Jews in the mind of the rulers was typically what they believed to be created by God and perpetuated by God because they understood what we did in the anti-Semitism lecture, something called supersessionism, that since Jews did not accept Jesus as Messiah and or killed Jesus, which was the other anti-Semitic trope against them, that Jews were forever considered unequal and less than Christians and therefore should be treated as a Jewish group and moved around um, by a by group. So everyone get for a thousand years, Jewish was a group status identity marker. And it would, had the force of law and the kings and queens could use that in order to move an entire group wherever they wanted them um, in their kingdom and in the law. So, for this thousand years, we learned two Jewish history lessons. Number one, group status is bad for the Jews. Just sit with that for a moment, because what we're going to do is we're going to play with that sentence. I'm going to keep flipping that sentence. I'll just tell you now, because you know me already. I'm going to flip that sentence back and forth, you know, for the next 40 minutes. Group status is bad for the Jews. And you can internalize in your own minds the extent to which you agree or disagree with that assertion. I will tell you in the medieval European system, it's kind of hard to disagree with that fact. Number two, strong central government is also bad for the Jews. You know that line, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This was even more disheartening for Jewish populations in the medieval period because the more power the government had, the worse the government could do things to the Jews. So as we emerge from medieval Europe, we know two truths about the Jewish experience outside of the ancient land of Israel, and that is that group status is bad and strong central government is bad. Jewish situation not being good for anyone 
I'm a peasant. I'm a peasant forever. Well, this is great because um, Roman numeral 5A1B says, and it's not on your list, it's on mine, peasant, always a peasant. I just skipped over it in the interest of time. Well done. You get tonight's Radar O'Reilly Award for being able to read my script when, I don't, when you don't even see it. It's pencil worthy. Just grab it afterwards so we'll keep going. So the question is, how about a peasant always being a peasant? And he's actually reading a line. And I explained this to Ari, but I'll explain it to you. Um, my lecture notes, I, pl I print on expensive green paper because I found my students steal my lectures. They claim they're not stealing my lectures. They claim they think it's a handout. And then I have to get up here and say, everyone look at the upper right-hand corner of your handout. Who has one with a number five on it? And then, oh, I do. I say, well, you're five. that's page five of my lecture. Give it back. But once I switch to green, I, well, and they steal it, I see the green sheet walking away, and I follow it. So it's much better. All right. So step one, in light, uh, sorry, um, medieval Europe, and we have the baseline for as we're going to build to affirmative action. Here's step two, the Enlightenment, uh, which in Hebrew we call the Haskalah. And this occurred in the mid-1700s for the most part. It probably took 100 years, you know, but from the very beginning to sort of the very end. Started in Central and Western Europe. Never really got to Eastern Europe until Glasnost, actually, in the, in the 20th century. So the Enlightenment, or the Haskalah, is what they called liberalism. We have a problem with that word because the word liberalism has different definitions over time and place. So scholars will now call it classical liberalism, which is our way of saying to all of you, take a deep breath, relax. We're not talking about the Democratic Party here. In fact, the current Republican Party um, believes in this form of liberalism as well. Uh, so by calling it classical liberalism, you know we're talking about this 18th century idea. And here's what classical liberalism said. Civil equality, civil rights, citizenship rights, should be granted to all people. That was a liberal idea coming in the 1700s. And it was a revolutionary idea for the Jews. Because for Jews... The notion that they should have the same civil equality as Christians was not seen for millennium. And if you were here for an earlier talk, um, uh, actually I think you were, the lunch one, we talked about natural rights theory. This was what the philosophers called the classical liberal ideal of letting everybody have equal rights. That's the fact that all human beings are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among them are life, liberty, and originally, property, and then it gets changed to pursuit of happiness by Thomas Jefferson. Um, since all people are inherently equal, these philosophers said in the 1700s, the government must catch up. So the Enlightenment, or in Hebrew, the Haskalah, was this attempt to get governments to align with God, because if God created every single person in God's image, and all people are endowed by God with certain natural rights, then there needs to be an alignment between truth, which would be God's will, and the way in which laws um, are created. So this changes group status to individual status. This is going to be one of the most... I'm a modern Jewish historian, so when I teach the modern Jewish history, which is like all of the world, this is the most important moment in the course. The beginning of the Enlightenment, the beginning of the Haskalah, is the time when Jews are considered to be free, natural, 
equal rights with every other human being, where governments are supposed to catch up with the idea of God granting every single person the same rights. And if you remember, the Declaration of Independence was to promise oh, that. Is yeah. it To bring back my least favorite, most favorite fiddler on the roof, the question is, was the Haskalah just the translation of the word enlightenment, or was there actually a Jewish version of the enlightenment? The Haskalah is the Jewish version. So the enlightenment, called the enlightenment, happened among Christian philosophers. When those ideas came within the ghettos of the Jewish communities of late medieval Europe, they had to wrestle with among the Jews on what that meant. And there were debates, because as I joke with rabbis, what was synagogue affiliation rate in the medieval ghettos of the closed corporate communities of group status? 100%. And once the Enlightenment came and once the Haskalah came to the Jews and they said, guess what? We don't have to be members of synagogues. And then all of a sudden, it was the end of rabbinic authority. So even though it was anti-Semitic and pretty bad, it was good for the rabbis because they kind of had control over civil and religious affairs. So the best example from Fiddler on the Roof of the Haskalah are Tevye's daughters, right? Each of the, I don't want to give it away in case you haven't seen it, but each, each of the daughters pushes Tevye a little bit further into modernity, and he has to wrestle with how much comfort he has with the old rules being broken. So the process by which Tevye wrestles with the, the men that each of the three daughters are going to marry would be the Haskalah playing out which would be part of the larger enlightenment. And of course, the last one, or the second to last one, becomes the enlightened thinker outside of the Jewish community coming into the Jewish community saying, look, folks, you got you to catch up with, with modern times. Um, I need to say that the theory of changing from group rights to individual rights didn't work in the United States for African-Americans. Because even though in 1776 there was a promise of enlightenment in this country, uh, blacks were still considered property if they were in slavery. And if they were free blacks, they were very low on the social scale. Women were not given the right to vote. And women weren't given a whole lot of rights because those were all given to their fathers and then their husbands when they got married. Uh, landless whites didn't get the right to vote early on. You had, you had to actually own land before sort of the government thought you were worthy of having a vote. Um, and indigenous peoples of North America, they were considered a foreign nation, uh, so they clearly were not, were not integrated into all of this. So with the exception of understanding those, let's just look at, at the Jews of the time. What have we learned on our basic questions of the night? Individual status, it's good for the Jews. A weak central government, one like the US Constitution that has checks and balances, and protects religious freedom, that's good for the Jews too. All right, are we all feeling good about that? Strong central governments are bad, weak central governments are good, group-based status is bad, individual-based status is good. Thank you all for agreeing to the setup, Alita. I guess my problem is what you said about blacks and women and Native Americans. There is this ideal that every, every human being has these inalienable right. rights gifted by God yet we're going to make exceptions. So didn't some people still continue to try to make exceptions for the Jews in the same way they did for blacks and 
Yeah, so Alita's pointing out that, you know, that the fact that the Declaration of Independence did not extend natural rights, individual rights, all of the things that were promoting as part of the Enlightenment or the Haskalah for Jews uh, didn't play out. And, uh, and was this true for Jews? Yes, it was. And if you, if you were here for the Colonial America lecture, you'll see that in the religious freedom colonies, Jews did not have religious freedom or property rights, and they couldn't, they couldn't have synagogues, have cemeteries. Um, and even after 1776, there were only 5,000 Jews. But, so it wasn't even about the 5,000 Jews. It was really about how Christians understood government. Uh, and that's true. There were, there were Jews who also... I mean, when we do the primary source document reader talk next week, I've got some documents in the 1800s before some states actually had finally removed their anti-Jewish stuff from their state constitutions. So that is true. So I'm playing right now on the theoretical ideal of individual rights as something that Jews would like more than group status. And that, that's the only point I'm trying to say. I have to keep moving. We'll, we'll do questions at the end only because I want to, want to move through. So, so now... We're going to go to the United States, and we're going to now build affirmative action programs. But first, a word from our sponsor. Well, look at this book, which just appeared before me. It's The Little Engine That Could. Does anyone know this story, The Little Engine That Could? Would, would someone like to tell us the story of The Little Engine That Could? Uh, please, could you tell us? And I know it may not get on there, but I'm going to repeat the story afterwards, so it'll be okay. So please. There was a train train to get up the hill, and he thought he couldn't make it. Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, that's great. Um, I'll give you a pencil afterwards, but I'm flipping through my book trying to catch up with what you were saying. I, well, actually, that's not the version I heard. Yeah, I heard that there's this engine and this train, and it's carrying toys for children, and it's going up the hill, and it's a little engine, and the hill is really big, and it actually doesn't think it can make it up the hill. So it says... I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and it blows like a gasket in the engine, and the engine explodes. The, the train careens in reverse down the hill, crashing into the train station, causing the worst train crash in Gilded Age history. Oh, that's so sad. It can't end that way. And okay, you were right. The, your version of it, the, because they got over, over the over the hill. So, well, all right. There is no Santa Claus at CSP. Within the next four minutes, none of you will ever read this book to your child or grandchild ever again. Because let's talk about what this book really says. If there is a big challenge you have in your life and you don't think you can do it, all you need to do to achieve that goal is think you can. I think I can. I think I can. I'm a woman. It's the 1880s. I want to go to medical school and become a brain surgeon. I think I can. I, they, no, you can't. Because there's sexism and misogyny. And in the late 19th century, women are not going to medical school. And if they are, they're going into the women's professions or, you know, OBGYN, maybe. Um, I'm an African-American, and I want to go to Harvard and get a PhD and get tenured at an Ivy League institution. I think I can. I think I can. I know you can't. You see, the little engine that could assumes there is no systemic inequality in the country, that the only factor that goes into somebody who succeeds or fails is their own personal will and desire and hard work ethic. So, 
If you're a white landed Protestant man who inherited a gazillion dollars and you would like to go to Harvard, I think I can. Yeah, you're in. Because it's not because you thought you could. It's actually because the way American society is constructed, your group status matters. And as much as we wish to promise, and this Alita gets to your basic point, the individual, as they may be theoretically promised natural rights, in the real world, it's not going to happen and they're not going to be doing it. So by the way, this is called social Darwinism or conservative social ideology of the late 19th century. Those are the historical frames for it. Um, this was not just the dominant way of thinking in the late 19th century of America. This was pretty much the only way of thinking. When the Eastern European Jewish immigrants came, they offered some, some well, we're going to get to that in a moment. I just want to say that this children's book is, is actually a political ideology meant to tell young people that... Um, that, that they are solely and completely responsible for any group-based discrimination that might come at them. And if you are a radical revolutionary type, then you will know that this is a tool of the oppressive class to ensure that those who are downtrodden will continue to blame themselves for their downtroddenness and let you continue your wonderful career at Harvard. <laughs> That's, yeah, play it for them, then, and then we'll see. So the little engine that could is when, is when a British philosopher named Herbert Spencer got a hold of Charles Darwin's ideas about turtles and applied them to people. Now, you should know Darwin never intended his animal-based ideas to be translated to people. There was a Yale um, professor named William Grant Sumner, and Sumner picked up on Spencer's writings and brought them to the United States and propagated in the late 19th century this idea that Americans who are rich are rich because they're good, hardworking, honest people. They're the little engine that could. And Americans who are poor are poor because they're lazy, slovenly um, bums who only want to get welfare from the government and therefore are... Um, well, what should the role of government be if that's the way you understand wealth and poverty? What should the government do to help poor people if nothing? Because giving support to poor people will encourage them not to work. And, and that's social Darwinism. You know Darwin's phrase, the survival of the fittest? He didn't write it, actually. William Graham Sumner wrote it, but everybody thinks it's Darwinian. So... The fancy word is actually a French word, laissez-faire. Laissez-faire means let it be. And in the late 19th century, um, the government, the federal government at least, let it be. Don't, don't intervene in the everyday lives of the citizens and allow the natural forces of social Darwinism to play out. And if the government steps back, the worthy will rise, the unworthy will fall, and that is how we are going to create a better America. All right. So should Jews embrace late 19th century conservative sociology uh, and uh, social Darwinism? Yes. Yes? If right? they're, central, that, if they're yeah. central European Jews, yes, they did and they achieved. All right. So when the Eastern European Jews arrived, right? Uh, so Central European Jews tended to do much better, as we've learned in the last week. Eastern Europeans, not so much. Here we have a flip from what we saw before. Because um, now, 
American Jews who disagree with the little engine that could would like to see a stronger federal government intervening to help poor people because they see that poor people who are poor may be lazy, but they also may be facing discrimination. And rich people who do really well may be hardworking or they could be lazy with a trust account. And you can't necessarily easily collate or correlate um, those two uh, back together. So we have the Enlightenment, and then we have the Gilded Age. Oh, there is a little engine that could. And um, that's uh, Herbert Spencer, William Graham Sumner, and here is FDR. Now we get to the New Deal. If 25% of the country is out of work, and there are bread lines forming, and on his first days in office, he has to um, FDR has to bring up an obscure World War I banking holiday to, to shut down the banks to see um, if he can get some more confidence into the economy. Uh, the fundamental question for the, for the nation is, what should the federal government do to address the Great Depression? If you are doing the little engine that could, what's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. The prevailing conservative social, social, uh, social ideology said, FDR should let the poor people starve, encourage the rich people to continue to be wealthy. And then there was something called the gospel of wealth, where wealthy people were supposed to give philanthropy in ways that are going to help the poor people improve themselves. That was sort of an internal system. Well, FDR rejected conservative social ideology because it was not working, and he needed um, new ideas. And the new idea is strong central government. So here will be the shift. When 82% of American Jews vote for FDR in 1932 and 90% of American Jews vote for FDR in 1944, they are arguing for a strong central authority. Who would have thought that Jews would ever support a strong central? Is there a proper blessing for FDR? God bless and keep FDR as close as possible. Yeah. Hoover in 28, um, it would have, that's a great question. I don't know exactly, but it probably would have been around 30, about one third, two third ish is my guess, but I got to go look that up. That's a good question. Um, well, the, the historiography on Hoover is Hoover actually was far more like FDR than people give him credit for um, because he did the reconstruction, uh, reconstructive bank financing stuff. He did a lot of New Deal programs before it was the New Deal. He made a few mistakes with World War I veterans, um, and then FDR was able to play on that. But the latest theories on is trying to save Hoover because he's been down, you know, most of the historiography was not friendly. Yeah? Uh, the, the assertion that until FDR, outside the United States in communist and socialist movements, which were for strong central government, and also in the U.S. to some Okay, so how does the Jewish uh, attitudes towards strong and weak federal government play in what we'll call a transnational context with those in the Eastern Europe around socialism and communism? And uh, my answer is, this is not transnational history. Thank you very much. Yes, I just jumped from Eastern Europe to the U.S. really fast. And, in, and, and what I love about the question is, if this is a central question in all of Jewish history, and you, one's going to do a study, you want each of those. And you want to line up the time and place, and then how and why Jews react as they do to strong or weak federal government and group status or individual status. 
and then see if you can make sense. I'm, I'm going to have to keep going. Sorry, I'll have to do questions at the end. Otherwise, I'll, I'll never get through it. This is Isaac Rubinow. In 1935, he wrote the Social Security Act. He was the leader of the Jewish thinkers that abandoned the earlier thought and wanted a strong federal government and, and, and understood that group status mattered. In this case, the group that mattered were the working class people that lost their jobs. And they didn't lose their jobs because they were lazy and they didn't lose their jobs because they think they can, they think they can. They lost their jobs because there's a national international economic depression which wiped out people who otherwise would have been very productive citizens. And why, um, so the, the conversation they had in the 30s was the worthy poor versus the unworthy poor. So people like Rubinow would say, you know, in the Gilded Age, everyone poor was unworthy because they were lazy bums. Well, now, in order to get sort of people who used to think that way to flip over to the New Deal, they said, OK, there may be unworthy poor still. I get what you're saying. But there's a whole lot of poor who are very worthy. And they all they all they want to do is work and make money for their families. And this is what brings us to affirmative action and President Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ and the Great Society. So um, each of these points are um, debated, but I'm just going to sort of run through the, the, the general way in which the historiography speaks. And then when we get to question and answers, we can we can get into it. Um, LBJ's political mentor was FDR. He called himself LBJ because Franklin Roosevelt called himself FDR. He actually wanted to have the three initial thing going. And uh, FDR did a lot of great stuff in the New Deal. There's a lot of stuff he didn't do. Mostly he didn't deal with race and racism. And that's because he understood to get the support of the white South, he couldn't, he couldn't go there. Eleanor Roosevelt was a much stronger advocate for civil rights than Franklin was. So LBJ decides that the way he can do one better than his mentor is to dive into racism um, headfirst, and that required sociology. Sociology, the academic discipline that looks at how groups interact. So now we're back to group status matters. Dr. King was interested in individual rights, and he built his campaign on African-Americans, the natural rights theory, US Constitution, they're individuals. You need to treat them equally as every other individual citizen would. Some people argue that he actually was way into group status, but he played that for the white people. Um, no matter how you look at it, by the time it gets to the mid-1960s, um, Lyndon Johnson understands certain truths. There is group-based discrimination in America. It tends to play against people of color. It is systemic. And it is beyond the ability of even individual civil rights laws to change. The problem in America with racism is a sociology problem. It's a group-based problem. It is not an individual problem or an individual rights problem. Let me pause there, because that is a huge shift in public policy. It is a shift for Jews, and it is pushing Franklin D. Roosevelt to a place he was not comfortable going. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, he was first an academic and a researcher. He later became the United States Senator from the state of New York. 
And he famously or infamously in the mid-1960s wrote a report. They call it the Moynihan Report. Um, it actually had a, an official title where, where he described what he called a culture of poverty. The culture of poverty was a group-based, sociologically oriented idea that discrimination keeps repeating itself over the generations based upon your group status. So this is where it got very controversial in the, in the African-American community. Moynihan argued that African-Americans suffered from a culture of poverty because they had unstable families. That the unstable families were rooted in single parent households, meaning the mom, without a dad around, that there were high crime rates and there was violence. If you have single parent, unstable families and high crime areas with violence and lower educational abilities, right? And we can just make the list of all of the things that happen. And then you have a kid and the kid gets raised in that culture and they grow up and they, get, they have a kid and that kid, and over and over again, what, what Moynihan described was institutional poverty. It's not just that these kids who keep getting born generation after generation are poor, because they are. The system is set up that they have no chance of getting out of the culture of poverty, and it's going to go generation after generation. And he noticed it tended to afflict communities of color at a much higher rate than white communities. It's not to say that in the Appalachian Mountains there are not white families that suffer from a culture of poverty too, but certainly as the national research went on, he announced institutional poverty and institutional racism. So this is what Lyndon Johnson wanted to address in what he called the Great Society. The Great Society was supposed to be the New Deal, the sequel yet even better. The way the, new, the way the Great Society was organized was more power for the federal government, a much stronger federal government than even under FDR and the New Deal. The more powerful federal government, though, here's a big change from the 30s, it's going to give power to marginalized groups. So rather than giving power to, white, to whites, which is what most of U.S. history did, LBJ decided he's going to shift the strong federal government to give money to marginalized groups. And, uh, and he understands that he needs to insert, he needs to take action, not passive action. He needs to do affirmative things. Let's call it affirmative actions in order to help marginalized communities gain power. So affirmative action was for LBJ, a response to institutional poverty, institutional racism, and the notion that group status still matters. Discrimination happens on group status, and the only way you're gonna end that is a strong federal government, except that Jews, by this point, were not considered a marginalized community. As we've talked about in the last few weeks, they had achieved whiteness by that point. So, um, he passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. This sent a gazillion federal dollars into local schools, but unlike other efforts to put money into schools, this time he let schools, he basically let marginalized communities control the dollars of their schools, which, by the way, really pissed off the mayors and the governors. 
because they wanted the money. Uh, he created community action programs with Sergeant Shriver, who is, was the father of Maria Shriver and the father-in-law of Arnold Schwarzenegger, just to bring all the family connections to California. And the community action programs found young people like right out of, right out of college that wanted to go out there and, and be activists and funded them directly to go and help marginalized communities. Can you imagine the political response to this? Well, the political right couldn't stand it to begin with because they don't like the groups, any of this stuff. But even the liberals didn't like this because the liberal mayors and the liberal governors who used to get the money, now the money's going around them because what the sociology taught is it's, if this problem was going to be solved by the mayor, they would have already solved it. Therefore, you have to go around the existing power structure to change the existing power structure so you give money directly. And, um, and if you want to read on the Great Society, LBJ had to compromise on a bunch of this because he got a lot of political opposition. Yeah. I can't see well from here. What's that thing that looks like a cross on his chest, which I'm sure it's oh, not? Oh, there I can't. I can't even see from here. I don't know. He had a cross. This is signing. This is the um, Elementary Education Act signing ceremony. It's probably a designer. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have had that. But I, um, I will be talking about a religious aspect of that act in a future lecture. So I'll get back to that. Um, affirmative action actually began officially on. March 6, 1961, it was JFK who actually was the first one to have this idea. He said that government contractors need to, quote, act affirmatively to recruit workers on a non-discriminatory basis. I'll repeat that again. That's the official first definition of affirmative action. Government contractors need to, quote, act affirmatively to recruit workers on a non-discriminatory basis. Meaning, look, Passively, you ain't doing it, so you got to actually think actively about doing that. So Johnson picked up on that and sort of expanded the parameters of affirmative action. Uh, the reaction of Amer the organized American Jewish community to affirmative action was incredibly strong. And here's just to say to you that in my estimation, 90% of the national Jewish organizations agreed with affirmative action. So this was a big flip from where we had been earlier. Now American Jews understood that group status mattered. They wanted the government to acknowledge group status and they wanted the, the government to have more power to impact a group based upon its status. This is, this is breathtaking if you compare them to where the Jews were at the end of the medieval period. But I want you to see, is there a proper blessing for the Tsar if you trust the U.S. president and you trust American democracy, you will give it the power to do things that historically have been terrible for Jews because the American Jewish Committee knew that affirmative action was good. The ADL did. The Jewish Community Relations Council did. Um, and by the way, I have all the quotes here. I'm not going to read them to you in the interest of time, but if you're interested, I'll show you. Only one major group in American Jewish life resisted, and that's the, or the Orthodox denomination, uh, Agudat Yisrael especially, which is sort of more ultra-Orthodox or Haredi, and, um, and that's because they were not engaged with the larger secular questions of justice and equality, and uh, were solely, you know, in, in their definition, solely interested in Jewish communal stuff, so, so they, they opposed affirmative action. Yeah? To what degree was the Jewish reaction uh, an issue of Status versus what you just said, uh, justice and equality, which is really somewhat different. Is it group status or justice and equality? It, it's, it's, 
the dynamic between them. The, the question for, for Jews is, um, how bad does justice have to get before you're willing to empower a federal government that you are afraid might flip against you if you give it too much power? And that's a great historical question because over time and place, different Jewish communities will respond to that differently and there'll be different reactions. So I'm just kind of <laughs> trying to bring you in the moment. Uh, quotas flipped it all around. So what happened after affirmative action, for the most part, is that uh, it didn't work. I mean, you can encourage folks to be more affirmative in the actions that they take. Um, I grew up at Palos Verdes High School, an almost all-white suburban L.A. high school. And when I was a senior, the University of California Davis Aggie Marching Band came to our campus for lunch. And 150 of them did a whole thing out on the lawn. And I'm telling you, at 1.15 p.m., every one of us wanted to go to Davis. You know, that was a great PR move they did. And only years later, I reflected. I said, I wonder if they went to South Central and did the same thing for them, right? And, and so affirmative action would say to the, to the Davis marching band, when you're doing your tours, you've got to think affirmatively about where you're going and where you're not going and what you have to do in order to see that. Well, once it got to quotas, um, the word meritocracy came up because uh, Jewish organizations were so concerned about the anti-Semitic quotas from the 1920s that they said it's one thing to act affirmatively. It's another to have a rigid number. Now, you should know the quotas only came by judges who were looking at folks who, like Boston was supposed to hire, the Boston Fire Department was supposed to hire non-Irish. And they were told for years to do this, and they refused. So the judge said, okay, 10% of your new hires are going to not be Irish. And, and then Boston you know, had, had big issues. Um, that said, this became triggering for Jewish organizations. And even though almost all of them ended up supporting um, affirmative action, very few of them ended up supporting quotas. So now what I want to do in the few remaining minutes is talk about the myth of meritocracy. And this is the contemporary debate. So here's the classical idea. And by the way, so this is my argument. Here's my thesis. If you are my students, you get a half a grade bonus by writing a paper disagreeing with it. And, uh, and I'm going to make my case. The classical definition of what is a meritocracy is if you work hard, you're rewarded. If you have merit, you will succeed. We are an ocracy, a government, a nation that rewards merit. I think I can, I think I can. If you have the merit to think you can, then you should be rewarded with your goal. If you're a lazy bum, you're a bum. If you lack merit, this society should not give it to you for free because that would be counter to a meritocracy. Government should not intervene in that kind of case. And here's how it usually plays out as I hear it uh, in the American Jewish community. If a single minority student earns a place at Harvard with a lower GPA than your child, then they took your child's rightful place. That's kind of how, how the meritocratic argument plays out. The reality, though, is different. The classical, okay, so I've already said this. This is the little engine that could thinking. Um, and let me say, there, oh, there isn't and never has been a meritocracy in American society. A baby is born and statisticians and actuarialists can look at that baby and based upon the baby's gender and skin color, 
have a pretty accurate description of a lot of different things. How long you'll live, your level of education, your propensity to be arrested, whether you'd be convicted, right? I mean, um, and, and that is based only on the external factor that the little engine that could didn't. Um, the cycle of poverty then keeps people of color out of those merit opportunities. Um, public schools tended to be underfunded, you know, in marginalized communities. And then when there are attempts to integrate the public schools, as we had in L.A. when I was growing up in the 1970s, um, there's white flight, where those who have the resources pull their kids out of the schools, they go into private schools or Jewish day schools. Um, and then when that happens, um, the meritocracy becomes, it's a whole lot easier to get to top of the hill with the train if you've been to the elite private school than it is if you're stuck in the public school, which now isn't getting funded because all the white kids left. Um, small business. So, you know, if you're in business, you're doing well in business, you're going to hire your kid if they're interested. It'd be, it'd be great if you could. Or your extended family or the kids of your friends or, or members of your congregation or Jewish people or, 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 right? That in the same way there's a cycle of poverty, there are other cycles of riches where you tend to go with people you know and those who tend to have tend to stay in that culture and those who don't tend not to. So... Absent anything else, it's not really the, just the merit that lifts you up. It's the rest. Uh, Jack Warner, um, one of the founders of Hollywood, had a great quote about Carl Lemley after World War I. Um, uh, Woodrow Wilson said that World War I was to keep the world safe for democracy. But Lemley you know, used to like to hire his family members you know, to work in his company. So uh, Warner said that Lemley made the world safe for nephews. <laughs> And, and if we, and if we, and, and I know when you're, you're in the business world, now there's laws, like if you're going to hire in the business world, you actually just can't go hire your, you actually have to advertise, there's, there's like rules for how you do this, which is, a, which is an attempt to do this. If the meritocracy argument were true, then there would be no children of major donors getting admission. There would be no celebrity kids getting admission. No politicians' kids would be getting admissions. I mean, beyond what they would if they weren't. Um, all public schools would get AP courses. All public schools would get the extracurricular opportunities you want to put on your, res on your, your application. All public schools would offer great summer internships that you could write about for that. That is a level playing field, right? So the meritocracy exists from the level playing field. And when that happens... Um, Harvard will look a whole lot more like America. Like it will naturally occur that that will happen. Instead of if you see the photos of the Fortune 500 CEOs, they put them on a big center spread, like almost all white men, it would, it would be different. I argue that meritocracy is a code word. And the code word means you say it, but it actually is kind of hiding or disguising a deeper thing. In this case, it's about maintaining the systems of power um, as they are. So we can say that there have been affir affirmative action um, for white people. And the joke back in the day was Dan Quayle got into college, right? The former <laughs> vice president who apparently wasn't so. But if you're a Kennedy, you're going to Harvard. That's great. I mean, I, uh, you know, if you're not, if you, if, if you can't, if, if you're so bad that you won't succeed, hopefully your family will like send you to Yale or Princeton instead, but pretty much. Um, and then um, Karen Brodkin argues that the GI Bill after World War II was affirmative action for white people because that was a whole lot of government money to create a better cycle of education and home ownership um, for, for whites. Um, so 
Uh, one could say, the black kid took my kid's spot at Harvard. We could say, well, Chelsea Clinton got to Stanford. Maybe she took your kid's spot. Or any kid from the Bush clan maybe did that too. Um, they have early decision. It's a legally binding thing. You, your, your chances of admissions like triple. But because you find out very early, they don't know if they can guarantee you enough financial aid to get there. So families that can't afford to pay the whole thing have to maybe not apply ED. So that also tends to recreate that kind of system. So if meritocracy is going to be the word, all we need to do is apply it to everyone. And once we apply it to everyone, it's actually going to be very different, which means the way it is now is actually kind of a coded or loaded phrase. So I just wanted to bring in Hamilton, the musical. You know, how many of you have seen Hamilton? I don't know how much has gone around here. Okay. I've seen it three times now. I brought my family to see Lin-Manuel on in New York, cost a lot of money, but I got the dad award of the century now and I'm still playing it. I ask everyone who sees Hamilton, what did you see up there? Because everybody who loves it sees, they love it for a different reason. What I saw, and you know me, so you know how I saw it, what if power were evenly distributed in 1776? If you don't know the musical, every major lead is played by a person of color. Even though the words coming out are white man's words, they are being played by actors of color. The only white lead is the King of England, as it should be, right? Um, and then they have fun with that. So I imagine that if Hamilton were true, if meritocracy were true, then that would have been what it is. And then the whole country would have developed from Hamilton the musical. And, uh, and we would have seen that's Lin-Manuel as, um, as Hamilton. And, and that's the African-American actor who played George Washington. And it's kind of weird to, to hear him playing George Washington. And then just to imagine that that is, in fact, the inverse of the meritocratic um, argument. So affirmative actions and quotas were intended to create meritocracy, is what I argue, not undermine it, that it was the only mechanisms that would open doors to qualified minorities. A member of my doctoral committee, George Sanchez, who's now at USC, um, and he's open about this. He says, look, I went to Harvard as an undergrad because of affirmative action. He got his PhD out of Stanford because of affirmative action. And he got positions at UCLA and then Michigan and then USC because he is a Latino scholar. And by the way, he is a brilliant Latino scholar and he's written many books and he was on my committee. And without affirmative action, he knows that he would not have ended up on that particular path. So ultimately, once again, this is about Jews, affirmative action and power because once Jews achieved whiteness, the whole notion of group status or individual status, strong federal government or weak federal government all got mixed up again. So all I can say is, is there a proper blessing for the czar? Well, in the current political environment, that really is the question. And because of that, I'm ending the lecture right now. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lita.
go to those lofty places. One issue I have with that is, you know, I, I don't think it's a matter of whether blacks are any less able to do that than most whites. Um, when you're talking about the people who have achieved positions of incredible power and wealth in this country, that is probably 1%, 2% of the entire population. When I was growing up, I was white, I was a woman, a girl. I, I knew I, we didn't have money. And I, I didn't sit there and think that I'm a victim of some type of systemic racism or because I can't, I mean actually I got into Harvard but I couldn't go because I didn't, I couldn't afford it. My question is, thank God for the, well first of all, thank God for the legend that could because if you teach children to believe that they can't, they may not be able to get to Harvard. They may not be able to be a candidate, but they can. They may be able to fight. They may be able to go into the forest and try to kill the Nazis. I can, I can, I can. That's more important than teaching them, no, you know, you're the victim of some kind of systematic, uh, institutionalized racism or uh, persecution, and you really can't. So instead of I think I can, just say enough. There's no, there's no way. Okay, can I, can I offer a response? Well, yeah, thank, thank you. I, I know there's more, but, but I, want, I want to give others a chance too. Um, so uh, thank you for the feedback. Mostly thank you for the engagement because the, I, I am in the field in order to uh, impact, and clearly I have impacted. So, um, so I, I think a bunch of what came back is actually is what yeah, a bunch of what came back is actually not what I'm arguing. So, 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 uh, so I want to articulate that, but then bring it back to what I am arguing. So, um, it's a sociological question, which means there are going to be those in marginalized communities who are going to do extraordinarily well. And there are going to be those in privileged communities who will not. And we can find examples. Typically, it's Oprah, Michael Jordan, right? I mean, you get, you get that kind of argument. So while, while individual cases are true, what the Great Society did was ask, sociologically speaking, how does it look on an aggregate level? Uh, and on an aggregate level, the, the, data, the data is convincing which then leads to the next question, which is, do we not want to tell children to, do, to work as hard as they can? I will say, as a parent, we should tell our children to work as hard as they can, right? And the little engine that could story is not intended to say, don't work hard. It is intended to say there's systemic inequality um, because this, this story is written, rooted, and and is contextualized in Gilded Age social Darwinism and conservative sociology, social ideology. It was designed for the express purpose of advancing an understanding of a system that did the terrible things that I argued that it did. That doesn't mean, and, and here's how we can flip it, you could take the little engine that could into the great society community action program um, living rooms where they're trying to train their kids to be good leftists, right? We'll just say radical revolutionary leftists and say to them, that little engine didn't think it could do it, but you have to work hard to bring the revolution. And I think then it would work for the opposite political purpose for which it was originally written. So I made the argument within it, within an historical context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. when, when affirmative action Great Society first came out, I was working in Watts, and uh, they offered clients uh, the ability to go to school uh, and get, for example, uh, nursing degrees and what have you, and clients went, 
neighbors took care of children because they still didn't have child care there. Uh, but there were still, they still had to um, hire a cab to go outside of the area to get groceries because there weren't any supermarkets in the area. And that stayed that way forever, practically. Um, there was no public transportation. They were still redlined when it came to trying to buy a house if they were able to save any kind of money. Great. So I'll say, I'll say for the podcast, what we're getting is a description of somebody who worked in a great society program in Watts describing what I would describe as the systemic inequalities that were facing the local communities and their ability to try to get out of the culture of poverty that I was describing. So there was no ability to... Um, to, to have a mortgage, pay it off, and, right. and, and so this is what great. So all so I said, it just yeah. kept going round and round great. and round. So there, it didn't do them much good because the community didn't support right. them in any way. Right. So so this is a, a, one of the challenges at the local level, which. The, which, and by the way, the Great Society ultimately failed. I didn't give that one because this is on affirmative action. It ultimately failed, and the reason it failed is that most of the money ended up supporting the white middle class rather, rather than those that, that, it, was, that it was targeted for. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Could you please pose your question in the form of a question? Yeah. So the question is um, describing the fact that coming out of college, trying to get into med school, that white Jewish men were unable to get into med school because of affirmative action. So the argument that I made actually flips that. It's to say that um, that it's possible that they didn't get into med school because you know a Kennedy descendant or a wealthy donor or somebody else took that spot. Um, and what the affirmative action is trying to do is to create a meritocracy so that all, that every individual not based on group status would have the opportunity in order to do that. The idea that that someone who doesn't get in when somebody who isn't white does get in and then focusing the attention on the fact that that person would be responsible rather than any of the other white folks who also got in based upon privilege unrelated to their GPAs um, is the first level. And then the second level is the value to society um, of having diverse folks at all levels of the economic strata, which would be independent. To answer your question about was there a response to it by the Jewish community, famously and infamously, it was called the Baki case. Um, there was a Defunis case at University of Washington that was declared moot because he actually graduated from another law school before it got to the Supreme Court. And then the Baki case was a UC Davis um, law school and, uh, and the Jewish community was about two-thirds, one-third in favor of affirmative action, which would be opposing Baki, and then about a one-third supported Baki. But that's really what, what brought the attention you know, into the mainstream. We think of these things as having been uh, in the 1800s, but um, uh, as I look back on it in uh, 1953, uh, when we moved to California, my parents bought a house. Mother wanted to have the garage floor covered in linoleum. And so she went uh, to Sears to get um, a price. And they would not let her sign for it. 
They wouldn't let a right. woman sign for it. So, so here's a ca here's a, here's a case of sexism father. that occurred. Yeah. So that so th these are all parts of the systemic um, issues around um, uh, discrimination that they're trying to do. Any questions? <laughs> Well, I will say, I want to give credit to everybody because this, we're, we're amping up the emotion on this topic even before I came in tonight. This tends to be one of the more heated ones. Israel Zionism and power is the other one that tends to get to people heated. So I tend to get uh, fewer questions here. Yeah, Mike. Is there an argument that affirmative action is a form of group reparations for past injustice? Um, so the question is, could affirmative actions be a form of group reparations? I guess you could make the argument. I don't think that's what Johnson was arguing. I think Johnson was looking um, to try to create a current reality different than the past. And, um, and in other words, the word reparations never came up when I was doing any of my research. Later on, there has been you know the, the 40 acres and a mule translated to the 20th century um, for ways in which um, there can be cap. So the issue, the main issue among African Americans is lack of capital. That there was never a point at which African Americans could achieve uh, could achieve capital. And once capital is achieved, that's when you can do business. But lots of good things happen from capital. So the reparations was an was an, an attempt to figure out how capital could be translated. So affirmative action was not about not about that. It, it was about trying to break internal cycles of poverty so that um, the next generation could break free. And education was seen as a key component to breaking the cycle of poverty. Uh, all right. Few good questions. One is, how active was the, were Jewish people in the New Deal and in the Great Society? Was, was there a disproportionate number of Jewish people in the policy side, or is that there were a disproportionate number of Jewish people on the grassroots level of both the New Deal and the Great Society? Absolutely, it was consistent with the Jewish left. And then historically, it seems if you look through American history, where we tried to fix problems, it's white people trying to solve problems for non-whites, and we tend to mess it up. For example, redoing cities in a certain way, we've created worse problems. Contemporary question, which is, are people of color now involved in this issue, and are they trying to solve it in a different way? And if so, what is it, how would Jews... Yeah, so gen yeah, generally it's a problem when, when white people are trying to, to fix things you know, in communities of color, at least without consult and without following the lead. Um, the issue that Daniel Patrick Moynihan had when he issued his report is uh, African-American leaders were upset that he was blaming African-Americans themselves for their own culture of poverty, when in fact, if you went to the African-American communities, they'll go, no, this is actually about racism. So don't deal with our broken families, deal with the white racism that created our broken families, because that's actually the root of the issue. So the way that gets translated to Ari's question is that more and more now, um, white groups are using the word ally, and, um, and ally means that... Uh, that just basically take a deep breath, slow down, listen, and figure out ways in which you can fall into helping a pre-existing strategy based upon those who are the victims to be able to identify their victimhood, define it, articulate ways to get out, and then, and then follow along. That tends to be a challenging thing to do for, for lots of white folks generally, yeah. For cover clarification, I would say, now I studied Jewish organizations, it's about 90% of the organizations favored affirmative action and about 95% opposed quotas.
Now, that's assuming that American Jews believe what their organized leaders say. And, and it's true that you'd have to take a different polling to figure out if that matters. But I only, I only wanted to study Jewish leaders who claimed that their positions on affirmative action were Jewish ones to in order to see. Yeah. Going back to medieval Europe, that's a great transitional introduction. Thank you. Could you make the case that in some cases it was better for the Jews to be the king's Jews as opposed to be under the church? All right, so was it better for Jews to be under the king or the church? Um, so specifically, it mattered on who the king and who the church was. If we're going to go generally, the challenge with being under church authority is you were dealing with the religious issues around Jesus and Jews as Christ killers. That tended to get intense. If you were dealing with kings, you could have that, or you could... You could have the king's understanding that the Jews may be able to play a positive role in the kingdom. And if that's the case, they would probably be treated better. Uh, I'm not a medievalist. I'm just happy that I get to answer a question like Professor Fred Astrin, and I'll check with him and see if I answered it right. Uh, I want to check to make sure everyone who hasn't asked a question yet has a chance. Last question. Just All right, last question, then we'll take a new voice. Yeah, yeah. So I was just curious. You were talking about how um, affirmative action some students fairer chances to get into colleges or full quotas. Is that a bad thing necessarily? Because I mean, when you talked about it, I, I wasn't sure if you thought that it was beneficial or that it was more harmful. Thank you. That's a great question because I didn't say that because I'm an academic historian. And so, yeah, sorry, the, the question is, was, was affirmative action a bad thing, basically? You know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a judgment or a value assessment on it. So my job is to analyze his history and the trends and the themes and explain how and why things got to where they were. Um, and then I leave it to the audience to, to come to the conclusions. And I, by the way, I don't imagine that anyone has changed their opinion coming in from where they were before, but I hope that folks have a deeper sense of the theme of Jews in power. Do you trust strong federal governments or not? And um, whether or not Jews believe in individual rights or group rights, because what I'm arguing is it keeps flipping around all the time because it keeps bringing up lots of different sensitive issues over time and over place. Thank you very much.